1: Hello and welcome to At Home with the Lalas, the podcast where Lara Fraser and myself, Lara Podelska, check in with people all around the world and find out how they're coping during COVID-19 time.
0: Yes, and today Boris Johnson actually made a huge announcement. He said that as of July 4th, some normality can come back to the UK citizens' lives, and that means that certain shops are going to open, certain services can resume. Mm. The two meter rule is going down to one meter, meaning that you can go over to your neighbors' friends or family members' house, and on top of that, parts of the hospitality industry are going to resume which a lot of people are getting really, really excited about, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, so to give everyone a little bit of context that
1: isn't in the UK, we have effectively been in lockdown. We have not been allowed to leave our houses really... Well, recently we are, but... Yeah,
0: only for exercise for purposes exercise. and going to the grocery store, yeah. very
1: basic things. Very basic things, and you and I have stuck with this because I think we really didn't have a choice and mm. we want to, to see our family again. And yeah. it's been... Very, very interesting checking in with so many people and finding out how different their lives have been
0: affected by this horrific mm. disease, really. I think also what we were discussing as well, when you are not working in the front line mm. and in any of those services, whether it be for the NHS or the Postal Service... Or essential ad- jobs, Essential, right? essential yeah. jobs. You have this idea of lockdown as being bored and stuck in your house and even though you hear things on the news even though you hear these huge numbers and stuff it, it doesn't seem real does it doesn't it doesn't seem real and also there's a weird discourse that we shouldn't trust not a weird discourse no i agree so there is a discourse yeah. that we shouldn't trust the news so when you hear personal accounts it's very different i so
1: agree you know i and and exactly what you said about the news actually because there's been so much information mm. and so much conflicting information that i just thought for us, the best option is to just stay home until this yeah. calms down. And I'm I'm glad we took that decision. And in the end, what has come out is is that this is far greater than I think any of us could have imagined. Especially in the UK, yeah. we are at I think over forty thousand
0: deaths, yeah, I thought which forty five thousand. The numbers yeah, constantly changing. They constantly change as well, yeah. which which
1: is also something I find really confusing. It's also Don't you feel like it's incredibly unfathomable how many people have lost loved ones, how Mm. many people have lost their jobs, how many people have not been able to bury their loved ones? I'm not sure. I feel like celebrating on the 4th of July, I feel like maybe easing into something, obviously supporting the hospitality industry, which you and I both also work in, but um, mostly
0: really supporting everybody who's been on the front line still mm. i think i think it's so multi-layered the emotional um surroundings about celebrating july 4th because on the one hand our economy so desperately needs us and so many people have lost their livelihoods that any any glimmer of hope is something that they would like to celebrate On the other hand, like you said, we're still in uncharted territories. This could really bring about a second spike in COVID. And Lord knows what we'll do then.
1: Absolutely. I think for me, over the last few weeks doing this podcast and interviewing people from Mexico, Rose in Mexico, Mm. to literally all around the world, to Mm. Los Angeles, back to London, it's been it's given us a bit of a glimpse on the struggles and successes everyone has had or how they dealt with it, if you will. Yeah. And when I mean successes, I mean surviving and not getting infected and not getting ill and not being being mm. hospitalized, essentially. So on this note, I wanted to say I feel very, very fortunate for everyone that has come on and a big thank you to them. And at the same time, we have a wonderful guest today. We have... Probably just the most inspiring, brave, great friend that I can imagine. We've got Sarah Malindwa on the show
0: today. Sarah Malindwa has recently, well, at the beginning of COVID-19, gone back into nursing for at a hospital. And just a bit of background on Sarah. You might know her from the incredibly successful show and educational show actually called The Sex Clinic. She's also a fashion stylist, presenter, radio host. So she has all of these things going on, but she made the conscious choice to say, actually, I have a skill set that I can help people with and I'm going to risk my life by going back yeah. into the NHS into a hospital with loads of cases of COVID, and from the very beginning, helped as one of our essential workers. And how
1: brave is that to leave your family behind and not be able to see them? And also, you know, the fashion industry, all of that, it's a bit of a fickle world. It's, yes. it's fun and all that, but it's, glamour, it's glamorous. And mm. she does work in the industry, It actually very successfully so. She worked for 1883 magazine and mm. she worked as a stylist on thousands of shoots and videos. And she's had all that success and as a presenter. And then she decided to put on her PPE, go on the front line, live in a hotel, which we should, she will tell you all about. And fight this disease I,
0: I found her interview incredibly moving and I, I hope that you all are as inspired as I was by yeah. her own words so I think there's nothing left to do but let her talk completely agree, here's Sarah Malindwa <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's so good to see you. So good to see you
2: guys in this virtual world. I've not seen you girls in ages, so I'll settle for the, the, the video chat. This is great. So thank
1: you for having me. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to start at the very beginning, actually, and ask you, where were you born? And how did you end up being so incredibly brave and work on the front line fighting this virus?
2: Yeah, no problem. Um, So we're going way back now. So I was born in Uganda, which is in East Africa, and my parents immigrated here in the 80s. So I came when I was super young. Um, And so I grew up in South East London, in somewhere, a little place called East Dulwich. And um, I've lived on and off in South, you know, South of the river, so uh, sort of most of my life. I started out, career-wise, I started out as a nurse. I went to university at 17, so I graduated a year earlier than I was supposed to, and I qualified as a nurse when I was 20. I'm now in my 30s, to put it into perspective, Um, and I pursued a career as a nurse, and I worked in acute medicine for five years in the NHS, and then about five years into my career as a nurse, I decided that... I wanted to specialise um, as a nurse, and so I decided to specialise in sexual health and HIV, uh, which I've been doing for the past nine, almost ten years now. And in the middle of sort of specialising in sexual health, I also decided to make a career move. So as much as I loved being a nurse, I also had this other side of me that was more creative, and I always um, wanted a career in the fashion industry. But you know, being a being a young girl from a working class background, I think a career in fashion always seemed like super big. And this was when I was in my sort of early to mid-20s where there was no Instagram, no Twitter, no social media, like it wasn't a thing that it was now. And so when sort of Twitter and Instagram became a thing um about say eight years ago, I thought, you know what, I can probably actually do it without having to depend on like an internship at a magazine or having to depend on like knowing somebody in the fashion industry and so I just started doing some like test shoots um as a stylist I I went into the fashion industry as a stylist and I sort of built my profile organically sort of from the ground up um through networking through working with um up-and-coming photographers and models and makeup artists and um eventually just ended up building my profile through that and then i got my foot in the fashion industry uh that kind of fell into doing radio so i did a fashion related show for about four years and that's how i sort of got led into being a presenter so i started out in radio um and through radio i somehow fell into tv um but before i went into tv i was working as a fashion editor as well which i sort of gave up the role um almost a year ago now Uh, just because I I was having loads of things going on but I I always wanted to be a fashion editor and so I sort of ticked that off the list. So once I've done that um, I sort of continued with sort of my TV stuff that I focus a little bit more about and within TV it's more from my uh, career as a nurse and so I do a show called The Sex Clinic for Channel 4. Um, We're in our second season and we should be gearing up to film my third series soon and it's about sex and relationships and it sort of draws from my nursing qualifications as a sexual health nurse Um, and it's about sort of encouraging young people to talk openly about sex, relationships, body issues, everything to do with sort of you know that field of things and so um, what I do now at the moment is I still work within the fashion industry I work as a freelance stylist but I work part-time as a nurse so I do two clinics a week um in a sexual health clinic and that sort of keeps up my um my nursing profession so that I don't lose that because I never want to lose that uh, and so I still practice that because I do the show as well and so that means I have to you know keep up my my practice as a, as a sexual health specialist so I do that and I do sort of freelance styling work I do presenting I do the odd radio bits and uh, bits and bobs here and there um I'm Hopefully starting a show soon on talk radio. Um so kind of getting that done, but the last few months have been a little bit crazy. I've gone back into um into clinical nursing, so I went back to the hospitals uh during the pandemic. Uh and I've just it's been I think I think this is my third week now since I came back from the hospital. So I was there for I think two to three months, sort of working on the front line. I've not worked in the hospital in a very long time, so um just coming back from that has been a little bit intense.
0: So, I wanted to ask a question on that because you have actually gone back into the hospital system. There's a huge pandemic going on, and I'm sure the pressure is very high. Firstly, I want to know what hospital you were at and some of the things that you'd like to relay to the public about your experience on the front line. Yes, so I
2: was working, so at the time of this recording, um, we've sort of gone past the peak of the virus. And so we're sort of in the phase where we are the lockdown is being lifted and sort of life is going back a little bit you know back to normality a little bit we're still obviously the social distancing um in place and you know people wearing face masks so i've been out of the hospital for 3 weeks now and during the pandemic because i know there was a lot of you know, it's like when something like this happens on a global scale, it's just there's a lot of information overload and there was a lot of people saying, you know, this thing is not real. This is all, you know, all these conspiracy theories and all these things. But um, obviously, I was in the front line. I was looking after COVID patients. and I remember my very first day. Now, bear in mind, I had left the hospitals um, eight, nine, almost 10 years ago, I think. And um, I've not been in a hospital environment for that length of time. And so going back for me was quite daunting. I thought you know because sexual health is very very different to clinical actual nursing you know looking after sick people um which i did for five years but i've been out of it for so long so i was really like nervous with i remember everything obviously i had all the training to sort of um uh, refresh myself and get back into it but going back to the front line it was completely different to what i remember of course the circumstances were exceptional um and literally on a daily basis you're having to call family people's families and tell them that you know, their relative has been diagnosed and somebody's passed away and uh, you know people can't come in and see their relatives and so the one thing that I want um, your listeners to know and to um, acknowledge is that the virus is very real and even though things may feel like they are getting back to normal which is great we're still not 100% out of the woodworks because there is no vaccine at the moment. Um, there's great news in that there's a treatment that's been um, discovered for it, potentially. It's called dexamethasone. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a treatment that they've found that it can potentially treat um, coronavirus. So I think this all came out about a week or two ago in the press. Um, So, but at the same time, it's still very new. And so it's not really been been trialled. So what I would say to people is to um, acknowledge that the virus is still very much real and to maintain social distancing, to still only go out if you absolutely have to meet up with small groups, keep the distance, you know, wear your face mask, continue hand washing techniques, because you know, we've seen 50,000 plus people in the UK have lost their lives to coronavirus, which is a, a huge number in a short space of time. So the virus is still very real and it's still very much present in the community. So we need to still be as vi- as vigilant as we were before and not not sort of relax on the uh, on the um, going out aspect and you know going back to as it was before.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for this. I saw on your Instagram that you actually didn't stay at home whilst you were on the front line working at the hospital. Can you let us know where you
0: stayed?
2: Yeah, so um, because I live with with others, um, what happened was um, so so the hospital where I practice actually is where I did all my training. It's the only hospital I've actually it's the only trust that I've ever sort of worked for. I did all my training there fourteen years ago, um, so that's the hospital that I'm that I'm used to that I know um, quite well, and so. Uh, it's in Chelsea, so it's called Chelsea Westminster Hospital, um, and it's not far from Chelsea Football Club. And so the owner of Chelsea Football Club, they so kindly and graciously let us have their hotel for the for the length of time during the pandemic, um, and that was for staff who either lived with other people and didn't want to expose those people to the virus, or who lived too far um, and couldn't sort of commute in for their shifts. And so they they offered the hotel to us, and so I was I checked in for. Yeah, I think for the whole time, for the whole duration I was there, which was a couple of months, I was sort of staying on my own. Um, It was just only like a five, six minute walk to the hospital. So that was really handy because it meant that I didn't have to go on public transport and obviously looking after COVID patients, having to then go on public transport and potentially spread the virus. So it was really handy that I could stay in a hotel. But it was, as you can imagine, very segregating. You know, I was literally just hotel home you know hotel uh, hospital back and forth for two months so I mean the first couple of weeks was super hard because of course you know you're literally on your own you have no one to talk to if you have a hard day at work there's no one to sort of offload that to and um and so that was tricky but at the same time it was nice to just have that headspace and just to focus on on the goal and the reason why I went so I was just literally just focusing on my work I was just taken up as many shifts that, that were you know as, as often as they needed me I actually didn't mind working more than normal because otherwise I'd just be sitting in a hotel so um so it worked out in that way um and I'm just so so grateful that that we had the facilities and just how the community pulls together during a time like this and like you know all the hotels across London were offering their um the hotel for free to the NHS staff which made such a huge difference I can't even explain because I wouldn't be able to do you know sort of work as much as I did if I didn't if I had to commute to Chelsea every day so that was amazing.
1: Thanks Sarah. So what is a typical day like for you when you were working at Westminster Chelsea Hospital?
2: So I mean I saw a lot. Uh, my typical day so I would start at seven forty-five in the morning that would be the start of the shift. Um, and then would finish at about eight, eight thirty in the evening. So sort of looking at twelve, twelve and a half 12 and a half hour shifts. Um so you come in the morning, we do the handover, um, and I was I was on a on a ward that was it was a mixed ward. So some patients were COVID positive and then some were negative and it was different to how I remember being in the the hospital because they had to obviously um, change the environment to cater for the virus and to keep the virus at bay and so you found that patients were literally in a room in just a a white room with like a small window so you could literally just see them enough Um, you had to wear full PPE with everything um, and the protocol for PPE was very like the way in which you put it on, the way in which you take it off, how you, how and where you dispose of it was very, um, everything was sort of down to a T in it, in order to control the virus. And so you were finding that, but you know, I'd say if I worked a twelve-hour shift for about nine hours of that, I was in full PPE. And so um, you know, you spend your whole day, and obviously it was really hot around that time as well. So you know, we're in the summer. Um, so we hand over the patients, and then you're allocated a set. Um, number of patients, so I'd have, sometimes i have four patients, sometimes i will have six patients, it, really, it we just depend on staffing levels and how full, um, you know, the, the, the ward was, and, uh, you know, you do your ward rounds, you do your drug rounds, so I, you know, do all the drug rounds, then, then, you know, all the treatments, it, I mean, it's very complex, so I won't bore you with all the te- technical sort of bits to it, um, but with every patient, it was, what I found really difficult was the PPE, because every time you step into the environment you have to put it on you have to dispose and then you have to do the same with each and every you know patient that you had and I don't don't know if you guys remember but there was like a massive thing in the media about the shortage of PPE so when I started they were really like you know the masks that they were giving us initially you know the 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 normal masks that anyone can get the sort of surgical masks so initially we just had that and aprons and, and and we were like super uncomfortable because you know these masks they're not tailored to, you know they're just sort of every everyone can use it one size fits all type of thing and so the shortage was a bit of an issue initially but um luckily um you know we managed to get proper masks and stuff but you know it's just that worry it was, I wasn't even so much worried that I would get COVID um, I always I sort of made peace with the reality of that 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 was always going to be a possibility especially when you're looking after positive patients but my worry was always that I'd get it and then pass it on to other people yeah. And so yeah, and so the PPE was um, you know, that was a bit of a of a worry for the first couple of weeks, but then eventually um yeah, they managed to sort that out and then it was fine. But yeah, in a day you'd see even if if it's either my patient or somebody else's patient, but you know, several deaths on the ward. Um, I remember one patient, um, my first day, like I said, one patient passed away, and so when somebody passed away, you have to do something that they call the final right. So you sort of you know, prepare the body, you wrap the body, um, you know, put tags on them and then get get the body ready to be collected um, and taken to the mortuary and stuff like that. So doing that sort of on your first day back after almost a decade was was really tough. And so, you know, and then having to go back to a hotel room on your own and not even have sort yeah. of that, that extended support. So that was, you know, that was quite challenging. And I remember um one patient, I think it was a few days later uh, from following from that one. Um, he was about to pass away, he was an elder, elder gentleman, and and we had his daughter downstairs, and she was just hysterical, and um, because of the strict, the, the strictness of the guidelines, and you know, people not being allowed into hospital, it was so heartbreaking, but we just, we just couldn't let this lady come in and say bye to her dad, and For me, you know, as somebody who'd lost my dad, I found that like for me, that's something that I think will probably stay with me for a long time because you just put yourself in that person's shoes and how they must feel and just not even be able to like hold their hand and stuff. And so, what I would do with my patients like that is I would just get as much of my work done and then just sit down, hold their hand, and just like be there with them, pass on messages from the phone, from their relatives, so that. You know they have somebody there with them and just tell them how much they're loved and how much their family. God I'm gonna go. Oh, <laughs> it very emotional. But um
0: but
2: yeah yeah I'll say that was the toughest bit. But but having said that, as hard as it was sort of emotionally and everything like that, um it was also um it was just amazing to be in the environment and working alongside you know all the doctors, and nurses, the that- Healthcare assistants, the porters, the pharmacists, you know, the volunteers, and just everybody who makes, you know, the NHS, you know, work, I was just so humbled to to be, um, to be with everybody, and obviously, I hadn't been clinical in a long time, so people were, like, super helpful, everyone was, like, so supportive, I got so much support, I can't even, you know, say otherwise, but I got so much support, and just the community, we had loads of food donations, like, people just couldn't do enough, and I think that's what, that's what got us through it because it was like we just knew that everybody was just there for us, and then they clapped every Thursday, like things like that. That was just so little, and just you know you do it for a minute, but it means so much to the people who are working front line. So I think that's really what got us through the whole situation.
0: I wanted to ask personally, as I have someone so knowledgeable on the other side of this Skype call, how much do we know around how long the virus can live on inanimate objects, and You also told this incredibly touching story of a girl who could not visit their father who had passed from coronavirus. I wanted to know how much do we know about how long the virus can live on someone that's no longer with us? Or are we just in the process of still figuring all of these things out? I think that there's still so much
2: research going on about it and still trying to figure out. We know that there's a 14-day window period um of when you become infected and when you might uh, become symptomatic um we know that it's it, the thing about coronavirus is it's like any other flu virus the only difference is that none of us have had it before therefore we've gotten zero immunity to it um and, and i know initially and i think in some countries i think it was sweden they sort of adopted this um i mean correct me if I'm wrong I could be but I think it was Sweden they they, they adopted the um the herd immunity uh, technique so that basically let let society carry on as normal the more people that get it the better and then they build an immunity so that's essentially what coronavirus is it's a flu-like sim, uh, virus but nobody ha- nobody has immunity to it um I think I think if we're going to get a peak I think it would likely be in the winter months when people's immune systems are a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more suppressed and when we're more likely to get flus and colds and things like that. So far, you know, lockdown has kind of been lifted um, and people sort of out and about. We're not seeing those numbers rising up like they used to, which is great. So we think, so we've definitely gone past the peak of the virus. we still know how, but the good news is that we know, we do know now how it is passed on. So I think hand, what we know by hand washing, we know touching surfaces, we know, you know, when you sneeze, you know, the particles that are passed on from, you know, saliva and everything like that. That's how it was passed on, hence why you need the face masks. Um, so I think for people just knowing the basics of how it's passed on. So just wash your hands whenever you go into a new environment, wash your hands. We know what it's like on public transport. Like, you know, we, we all live in London, you know, getting on the tube and the buses um, is so easy. You know, you just touch a handle. You don't know how many people have touched that handle. So just being aware of, you know, having um, hand sanitizer, hand washing techniques. Um, that's just basically the best way to to keep the virus at bay. But I think there's still so much research and studies and there's things that, could, that are coming to mind now. But I don't want to quote in case something news come up that I've not you know had time to read up on um but the good news is that now we know how easily viruses are spread and we know what we can do for ourselves and for our immediate environment to um to help to stop the spread.
1: Thanks so much Sarah I just quickly wanted to go back to the time you spent at the hotel on your own now Lara and I talk a lot about self-care is that something you were actually able to do?
2: In, in, in sort of the hotel and stuff to be fair do you know what I did I just completely pretty much let myself go yeah. <laughs> like of, I was like forget it like no one cares I know, I'm not gonna see anyone and I sort of like when I went there I mean not to sound dramatic or anything but I kind of went in there like almost like I was going to war in a way like I was just like right this is it I'm just putting all my focus on this um, the thing is even when I was working I still had like um, sort of brand collaborations to do like I had a, a makeup thing to do with um, with Huda Beauty like so I did like a nice makeup tutorial so that was fun it was so fun I mean I, I was sat there a face full of makeup and going absolutely nowhere <laughs> but it was so fun to do and like you said you know you know we used to like getting dressed up and making ourselves feel good and look good and stuff and so even just doing my makeup was just so nice and just remembering that i still got the skills Yes. um so i did that for a collaboration and then love magazine sent me like a lovely bag full of lots of beauty goodies and like hand sanitizers and really practical yeah and actually i need to post it soon and like really practical things um that would help me sort of on the um you know while i was away um and then i've got i've got sent loads of beauty stuff so obviously wearing ppe for hours on end is not the best for your skin. So I'm not. I wasn't really getting that much natural light. I was in the hospital all day, and even when I was in the in the in the hotel, like I just couldn't even bother to go out. I just wanted to rest. So I was finding that I wasn't getting enough sunlight, and so that my skin started to break out. So after about week three or four, I was like, right, I need to start like a good skin regime going. So I would do face masks like two or three times a week. Yeah, I make sure I do t- my toner and just yeah. And I needed it so much because of the PPE, I needed to make sure I took extra care of my skin, but also just made me feel better. And, you know, I'd wake up and like have a fresh face and also not wearing makeup as often as I would do normally was a sort of a good rest for my skin. So I sort of took the opportunity of where I didn't need to wear any makeup to just um, to just look after my skin and let it breathe a little bit and just look after it. So for me, that kind of helped me to like relax and unwind and like feel a little bit more of myself. So...
1: So, in terms of your own mental health, and with regards to self-care, and really also PTSD that you may be experiencing now and in the future, is there something you might be able to do for yourself?
2: Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's something that I probably will be dealing with. I think that the problem with um, with like people who work in healthcare, doctors and nurses, I think. You see so much, like throughout your career, like you almost become almost like desensitized in a way. Like, but you, you, but you don't become desensitized. You just learn to sort of compartmentalize it. You sort of hide it away somewhere. You, you don't, you don't actually. It's not that you become desensitized, but you just learn to not deal with something. And I think with coronavirus, and because I sort of, um, you know, threw myself into an environment that I was used to you know 10 years ago but I hadn't been in in it for a long time it just hit home you know all the other experiences that I'd had before I'd left the hospital and then obviously with COVID and stuff and so one thing that I've come to acknowledge and I think it's great that we um that that we talk about a little bit more is that after the aftercare and the after support because obviously now everything's kind of gone back to normal and you know everyone's like been so appreciative of NHS stuff which is amazing but I think there also needs to be um it needs to be highlighted the support the psychological support that's needed after going through something like that because it's not just the patients that people were dealing with that they were looking after at home. I worked with a lot of nurses and doctors who, you know, survived COVID themselves who were like super unwell with it, like was super unwell. Um, I know a few who didn't actually make it through. So people dealing with like colleagues who had passed away, family members who had passed away, patients who passed away. And so it's it's a lot and you know, you deal with it in a short space of time. Um, So I've not, I've not saw, I've not even had, it's crazy because obviously we've been in lockdown, but I've been so busy like since I got back that I've not had time to sort of sit and breathe. And of course straight off the back of COVID, you know, we went straight into the whole, you know, everything that happened recently and the you know the Black Lives Matter movement, everything that's happened with that. And so psychologically I just feel like I need to go away for like a good month. Yeah. Please, and just breathe for a little bit. But um it's definitely something that I think that I actually want to highlight more as well. Um and uh and figure out how I can use my platform to um, to maybe come up with. If you girls have any idea, I don't know, just something. But I, I just feel like there needs to be some form of aftercare for people who have been on the front line. I was
0: actually I was actually having a conversation about this with a friend of mine who's a doctor as well in Australia, and she said all throughout, you know, um, healthcare professionals' careers, there is a lack of focus on the on the mental health side of things. Um, right. You know, and maybe that's something that programs should look into. Mm -hmm. Now that you've returned to your normal life, probably have some form of routine going on. Have you managed to put some thought in how you will adapt all your sectors of work, such as fashion, styling and presenting to these new ways of living?
2: To be honest, so everything sort of within fashion in terms of, so as you girls know, fashion week would have been earlier in June, the first week of June, mm-hmm. um, which is normally when we meet up and go out, which I'm really <laughs> going to do this season. So I remember sitting there, I was like, right now, you know, I could be at like a really nice party or whatever. Um, so obviously, fashion week has changed. Um, as you girls know, with fashion week... You can't really social distance at a, at a fashion show, can you? Um, and even like normal press events that I'd normally go through throughout the week, um, all of that is pretty much at a standstill until you know until further notice. And so what I'm finding now actually, um, and you know, I always I always believe that there's always something positive, always comes from something negative. And I think for me, the positive that I find is that I've had time to actually just stop. And even though I was working in the hospital, normally my life is like 100 miles an hour. I'm either a photo shoot, at an event, in clinic, uh, filming something. I'm always doing something throughout the week, um, like every single day, even on weekends. And so I I managed to have the time to just stop and just to figure things out. And so within the fashion industry, I think, and like, you know, as I said, with Fashion Weeks and, and even doing photo shoots. Like, you know, when I was working as a freelance stylist, you know, we'd set up photo shoots and stuff like that. So all of that is sort of at a standstill. I think they might go back to normal gradually, but I'm finding that I'm working in different ways in terms of, like, I'm doing a lot more writing um, in in terms of like sort of the, from the health perspective. Um, I've just re- very very recently started working with a new manager, so she's like, um, you know, we're doing a lo- loads of different stuff um, sort of within TV and and um, and that you know from that side of things. And um, I'm sort of trying to get back into radio as well, pick up from which I was trying to do before lockdown. So I'm trying to sort of pick that up again. So I'm finding that I'm probably working. Just about the same, but in just completely different ways. So I do miss the fashion, you know, the fashion element of things. um, But I'm finding that I'm focusing more on like the tv and the radio and my writing like you know I, I used to do a bit of writing here and there but i found that that's something that i'm sort of picking up a little bit more and so it's fun but i'm still doing like fashion collaborations and like trying to do like um you know collaborations with the handbag uh, there's a handbag brand that i've done a collaboration with recently um and so keeping my foot in the ner- in the in the fashion industry um and still doing all the other bits that i do um so just trying to which i've always done is try to like keep my foot in 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 a bit of everything to keep me because i'm passionate about all of them so i always figure what why can't i do everything that i love
1: it's so interesting now i do want to talk about the show you're currently on and you're about to go into the next season for channel four's the sex clinic how did that all come about
2: Yeah, so the Sex Clinic, um, Sex Clinic, I got involved with it in 2017, I believe, when we filmed the pilot. A friend of mine, um, who I know sort of from the creative industry, she works in TV as a casting director. And she she wasn't working on the show, but she knew somebody who was working on the show. And she knew that I had um, sort of a background in presenting and also knew that I happened to be a qualified nurse and that I happened to specialise in sexual health. And so she was like, Sarah, I know somebody who's working on this show. I think you'd be perfect for it. And it was in the really super early stages of the development. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is never going to, like, who's going to be, who's going to go on national TV and air their dirty laundry? But, I mean, how wrong was I? But, um, yeah, so wrong. And then, um, so she put me in touch with her friend. And then long story short, he came to meet me on one of the days that I was in clinic um, and he came down with all his leaflets about the show and just sort of told me a little bit. And then I did a Skype interview with him um, and he was, you know, quite happy with it. And then he uh, passed it on to the the, produ- the production team and then they invited me in uh, to their offices in Hammersmith to do like a proper, a proper like Uh, casting for it and then they said they they love the fact that I obviously was a nurse I was qualified to, to to do the job but then that I had the um the presenting background which was like a quite a unique combination to find and so they and so once they um once they cast me they then started looking for um the doctor and the health advisor to sort of make the full team so the three of us um and then we filmed the pilot in 2017 um, and that was for online so it was just for i think four od is it no, all four, all four, which is Channel 4's online content um, platform. And so they sort of put it out in, like, short episodes just to see how, you know, how people would take to it, if it was worth sort of making into a show. And then it was super successful. Um, You know, people, you know, it, it really resonated with young people. They loved it. And so they decided to commission it for, like, a proper TV series. And so we filmed series one um, for E4 in and I think, Jan- no, in 2018, we filmed that, um, and that was, like, when we really, like, okay, we're now in this show, we're on TV, kind of thing, um, and then Series 1, just, like,
0: just went, <laughs> like, yeah.
2: till this day, I yeah. still have people from, like, Australia, Croatia, New Zealand, because now it's, like, being shown in these other countries, and, um, and, like, I think you're never gonna go wrong when you're talking about sex. It's something that everybody can relate to. Like no matter what, where you come from, what race, like everybody, it's just so relatable. And so it really like it got a lot of attention, um, and it did really, really well. You know, the channel really happy with it. And so um, we filmed another series. So we got commissioned for series two, which is the one that's currently out. Um, so series two, we it was aired in January of this year um on e4 and then it's coming back on tv within the next couple of months so this time it's going to be on channel four so they've upgraded it to the main channel Um, so yeah which is great so it's going to be um they've not got the confirmed date but it'll be on within the next couple of months on channel four um and then normally we'll be getting ready we normally film in july but because of everything it's likely to be pushed back a little bit um a little bit forward to a little bit later within the year we'll probably film series three but so the sex clinic is um yeah no it's it's something that I, I've always said even before the show came about that it would be so interesting to do a show like this because even just in normal clinic I mean the sex clinic kind of touches on what it's like to be you know in sexual health but like rural clinic is even crazier <laughs> like it's even crazier but so to have a show that really reflects that and I think it really does it has a really good combination of like being really educational so it's super educational we, we really explain everything um in detail you, you see everything you know with the with the people that come on it the contributors it's up to them whether they have the cameras down or up so you know they've got the option um, and surprisingly a lot of them are like yeah it's fine and so which is good from an educational perspective because it's one thing talking about a symptom, but if you're watching a show and then you actually see it, okay, it might be a little bit like, oh my God, I I don't want to see it. But for somebody who may be suffering from something like that, for them to physically see it on TV, not only does it normalize what they're going through, but then they can actually you know look at what something looks like and it can um sort of help them with whatever they're going through and so what I find is a lot of people get in touch and say thank you so much for discussing I don't know like endometriosis which we discussed about a couple of times that you know we've never really seen a lot of people touch on some of the subjects that we touch on in the sex clinic um so it's educational but it's also like super funny like the, the mm-hmm. characters that we get through the doors, they're just hilarious. And so it gives it that sort of fun, young approach, but still being quite serious um, and educational as well. So it's super fun to do. It's, it's, you know, we have so much fun making it. So fingers crossed when everything's back to normal, we'll get, we'll get series three out to everybody again.
1: Yeah. What is your hope for the rest of the year? Well, really, what is your hope for the future?
2: Yeah I think it's been a heavy year to, to think that we're just in June and all the things that have happened this yeah. year like it's I think it I think it started with the fires in Australia and like it's just every month is something and it's just like what more can we you know can we expect for the year but I think if the coronavirus being sort of biggest thing that's happened this year i would say and and then off the back of that the whole black lives matter movement i think i hope that what we do learn from this and that what covid teaches us is that we are all connected in some way and what what we do as individuals has a knock-on effect on other people not just with the virus but it just in everyday life whether it comes to discrimination um generalization about certain people and certain group types um uh you know the feminism movement, the LGBT movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, all these different things that we're talking about that you think if you, you because you, you can easily say oh well, well I'm not gay or I'm not black or I'm not a woman therefore these things don't affect me but what we've learned from coronavirus and from everything that's happened in the world now is that we are all connected and until we see that um, we'll just always be going around in circles and bumping heads so i'm hoping i'm ho- I'm hoping that when we come out of this, we will have a greater appreciation um for humankind, for each other, um, and to acknowledge and accept um and realize that at the end of it we are all human, and this virus could have gotten any of us and has done. Um, and so, when it's all said and done we are human beings and we're all just trying to figure out this thing called life so I'm hoping out of all of this we'll have more kindness we'll have more inclusivity and um, a lot more love a lot more openness there's a lot of uh, conversations that are being had now that pre you know 2019 and before a lot of the conversations that we're having now on social media on radio shows on podcasts you know all this stuff you know we wouldn't be having these conversations they'd sort of be shied away so even the fact that we're talking about them I think um, I'm hoping moving forward in the future that we normalize talking about other things that don't affect us um, because that's how you can help your fellow human beings and that because things like racism it can't be done by just the group that is affected by it It takes it's you know it's a it's a a humanity issue Um, and I think when we start to see things like that that's when we can move forward and see actual systemic change. Thank
0: you so much Sarah that was an incredibly informative enlightening interview and you were an absolute pleasure to talk to. Oh, oh girls, girls. Yeah, <laughs> thank
2: it's, you. It's, thank it's, you so much, wonderful. girls. I'm so happy to see you guys, even if it's on Skype. But it's, it's great to see you girls as always. So thank you so much for
1: having me as well. Uh, we feel both. I think Laura and I are pretty teary and very <laughs> blessed
2: that oh, uh,
1: came on and yeah. and spoke to us today. Oh, uh, anytime, so anything cool. for you girls. Thank, you. Oh, thank so you
2: so much, ladies. Thank you. Love you lots. We love, love you. Lots. you. Love okay. You. Take care.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah. That was an incredibly moving interview as it was so personal and it really resonated hearing your accounts of all the things that have happened. It's made me really teary. It's
1: it's made me really somber and um, feel very privileged that we were in a situation where we haven't witnessed it. feel also very privileged that... Sarah decided to speak to us and come on the show today and just be so open and letting Mm. us in I cannot imagine what she must have witnessed
0: yeah I think the thing that kind of touched me the most was hearing how when someone loses a loved one they are unable to go into the room with them and unable to mourn in all the ways that we take for granted and that is just beyond devastating it's beyond
1: belief isn't it no, it's, beyond it's just belief. not something you can fathom mm-hmm. um i just want to pledge my support to every nhs worker and to everything sarah does and thank her for agreeing to come on and for being so brave and so strong and mm-hmm. so inspiring thank you sarah if you enjoyed listening to this podcast then Please do subscribe, and if you fancy rating it, you can do that on any outlet. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add
1: up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.